0: On this edition of the Iowa Business Report.
1: There's going to be a new normal and there is gonna have to be somewhat of a paradigm shift.
0: Businesses have responsibilities to customers and workers. How have those legal responsibilities changed in this era of COVID-19? More numbers about the impact of the pandemic, but also a bit of optimism. And we'll profile a business that shows Iowa grows more than just corn and soybeans. This is the Iowa Business Report for the second weekend of May 2020.
2: The Iowa Business Report is presented with support from the Iowa Association of Business and Industry. The Iowa Association of Business and Industry has been the voice of Iowa business since 1903. Learn more online at IowaABI.org. Here is Jeff Stein.
0: It's been a week since some areas of the state began to reopen for business, but in a far different way from what we're used to. The legal obligations businesses owe have changed as well. Amy Johnson is a business attorney with the Brown Winnick Firm in Des Moines.
1: The biggest obligation that an employer has at this point in time are its obligations for Occupational Safety and Health, or OSHA, as we all know it. And those obligations require that you do provide a safe workplace free from injury, free from danger. And so that's particularly important right now when you have this pandemic going on and you have folks that are frightened whether or not it has directly impacted them, at a minimum, you have people that are frightened. And so there is an obligation to maintain a safe workplace. And that's going to be very important, more important than ever for employers and businesses to consider.
0: How do we define those sorts of things, safety, etc.?
1: Yep. So those are going to vary depending on your industry depending on what type of business you're doing. And what I would recommend to everyone is the, you take a look two places. You take a look at OSHA and how and that, those guidelines and laws and how they apply to your industry and your business. And then I also recommend that you take a look at the CDC guidelines and what the CDC is recommending for businesses. One industry in particular that is worth highlighting, you're hearing a lot right now about the meatpacking industry and what those folks are doing what they're doing now or what OSHA, what CDC is recommending for them to do now looks quite different than what it looked like previously with regard to personal protective equipment and barriers and things like that. So it's really important more than ever that you look at that guidance both from OSHA and from the CDC.
0: Obviously that anxiety is present if you just simply as a consumer go into a store and you see other people with masks, whether they are staff people or fellow customers it's kind of jarring and i find that even if you're wearing a mask yourself it's kind of a jarring situation what might businesses do to try to alleviate some of the angst so that people will feel welcome in their businesses going forward
1: you know that's a great question and particularly you know my i've had this discussion with my husband who does our grocery shopping because you know certain of the of the grocers are requiring or not requiring masks at this point and based on my understanding, and I'm certainly not a medical professional, are more to prevent the transmission as opposed to actually contracting the virus. And so those aren't a bad thing. If you go into a business and you see those, that's not a bad thing. That's a precaution to help you as a consumer. There's going to be a new normal and there is going to have to be somewhat of a paradigm shift with regard to that PPE. And I I do think we'll see it become more of the trend more of the requirement perhaps in commercial businesses
0: when we're talking about businesses that might have allowed individuals to work from home and you just talked about a paradigm shift there may be some individuals who find that working remotely actually makes them quite productive they may say well you know i'd kind of like to do this a few days of the week to help with childcare, care etc Do you get questions from businesses that are themselves contemplating what this will look like going forward and whether some of these work-from-home situations may become permanent?
1: Absolutely. That question is going to continue to be prevalent among businesses for some time now because you're absolutely right. Most businesses that require an office-type setting, I'm a transactional business lawyer, so most of my time is spent drafting contracts and and you know emails and things like that and that can in a lot of cases be done from almost anywhere as a lot of jobs can so we're certainly going to i anticipate seeing a lot more uh, employees asking for those types of accommodations particularly we don't know what school situations or childcare situations are going to look like on a go forward. And those may not have the traditional approach that they have in the past. I mean, we don't know that it'll be a, a five day, full day school day with all 600 elementary students in the school and at the same time and whatnot. So I think that there's going to be some important lessons learned from this time and that businesses in order to adapt and change and stay relevant are going to have to take those things into consideration and in account when dealing with employees.
0: There are privacy issues of course in this situation when there's a health care crisis we might not mind being required to have our temperature taken to come into work etc. Is there a line to be drawn with regard to either an individual exerting their right of privacy or a business owner's ability to what in another time might be called infringe upon someone's privacy. I, I dare say I never considered the fact that my employer might ask me if they could take my temperature before I came into the building. And now that's commonplace in manufacturing.
1: Right. That's a great question. And again, it's it's going to be a paradigm shift for businesses. We haven't had an issue like this from a public health perspective in your or my lifetime. And so we are going to see changes and there is going to be a balancing of that right of privacy against that interest in public health. So we are going to see changes and we are going to see see differences there. And you're absolutely right. In manufacturing facilities, in healthcare care facilities, uh, even daycare facilities uh, that folks are using on an everyday basis, we're going to start to see that. And it really is, it's going to be a balancing act uh, of weighing that privacy, that right to privacy against the public interest and the public health.
0: A good business has a good, frequently reviewed and updated crisis plan. And I dare say few of them had global pandemic as one of the things that they might be looking toward. They were probably looking toward floods and tornadoes and natural disasters like that. If anything good has come of this, I suppose it's a matter that people are thinking about these crisis plans and contingency planning. Have you been getting many requests from clients for advice on how to better structure the operation, either to account for things in the near term and then going forward as they contemplate other things like this that may happen?
1: Absolutely. That, you hit the nail on the head. That is, This was not something that any of us saw coming. And I think if you did, then you uh, you have a skill set that is desirable. But yes, businesses are looking at those types of plans. They're looking at their, their business continuity plans. They're improving them. They're probably better than they've ever been. Certainly global pandemic was not the forefront of those in the past, but it's definitely there now. And that's not a bad thing. When you are making that plan, you do take into account all of the things that that we've talked about today. You take into account the privacy interest. You take into account the health and safety of your employees. You take into account your ability to provide goods and services to your customers or to your consumers. Those are all a part of it, all should be a part of it. That's regardless of whether you're talking about a global pandemic or you're talking about a flood or or, uh, some other kind of business interruption. All of those issues are important, and all of them are going to vary industry by industry. And so it's an important issue to revisit. Like you mentioned, if we've learned anything from this, we probably need to revisit them a little bit more often.
0: Amy Johnson of the Brown Winnick Law Firm in Des Moines. We spoke via Zoom on Wednesday of this past week. The Full Conversation is an IBR Extra podcast. Find it at iTunes, Google, or Apple Podcasts, or by going to totallyiowa.com and clicking on the radio programs link. Still to come, a bit of optimism moving forward, and a profile of a business that is the definition of vertical integration. You're listening to the Iowa Business Report.
2: The Iowa Business Report is a copyrighted production of Totally Iowa Media, which is solely responsible for its content. For more, click on the radio programs button at totallyiowa.com.
0: We know that the global economy has taken quite a hit this spring thanks to the novel coronavirus. The numbers, though, are stunning there has been an 824% increase in unemployment claims in Iowa from April of this year compared with April of last year, and a 1,990% increase in just the first six weeks since the pandemic started. Dr. Ernie Goss of Creighton University is recognized as the leading expert on the Midwest economy, and you've heard him on this program. His new Mid-American Business Conditions Index has one bright spot in it, the Confidence Index, which measures supply managers' economic outlook for the next six months. That level did rise from 14.5 to 45.5 in the past month alone. Still growth negative on the scale, but far closer to neutral. Goss and Associates has prepared a white paper on the economic impact of COVID-19 on the Iowa economy for TEF Iowa, another group we've told you about on this program. That study, released just this past week, notes that in the first three weeks of the pandemic alone, Iowa lost 243,000 direct and spillover jobs, leading to a loss of $557.8 million in salary and wages. Another $73.7 million in self-employment income was lost. Total loss to Iowa's overall economy, a staggering $1.6 billion in the first three weeks alone. The Goss report indicates that absent federal support via the CARES Act and Federal Reserve Stimulus, COVID 19 is expected to reduce Iowa's 2020 GDP by 9.7%. You can read the report for yourself by going to tefiowa.org/slash COVID. Up next, we'll reintroduce you to an Iowa entrepreneur and focus this time on a second business he operates. You're listening to the Iowa
2: Business Report. The Iowa Business Report is presented with support from the Iowa Association of Business and Industry, helping develop the next generation of business leaders through Leadership Iowa and Leadership Iowa University. To learn more, go to iowaabi.org.
0: Early this year in this series, we introduced you to the Interpower Company of Oskaloosa and its president, Robert Worson. That company moved to Iowa from California and grew tremendously here. So Bob Werson started another company, which has grown, literally, over the past two decades,
3: Tassel Ridge Winery. My interest in wine goes back many years. I've been interested in it since I was about 30. Prior to that, I'd go out to a fancy restaurant. I'd feel obliged to order a bottle of wine just because that seemed to be the appropriate thing to do. And I could never come to grips with the fact that I, I could go to the grocery store and buy grapes that tasted really good. But what I was getting in a fancy French restaurant, let's say, was, I can't believe that was ever once a grape. And the disconnect for me was the loss of the sugar. And I just couldn't square that. And I remember yeah. doing some things I'd chuckle about and kind of put my head down. I've done in the past just to try and figure out what that difference was, but I think that what motivated me initially was I had some land that was being used in a corn bean rotation. There were several employees at a Christmas party that I was the host at, and they were all farmers, uh, uh, spouses of my employees. This would have been about 1999 or 2000 along in there, and at that time crop inputs were significantly higher than what you were going to get by growing the corn or the beans or livestock. Everything looked pretty grim. And these guys were all the next generation coming into their farm operations, family farm operations, and they were trying to figure out what to do to make ends meet. And we started talking about grapes. I knew a little bit about them, but not very much. And my interest, based on that conversation, just grew. And pretty soon I was going to... Wine Association meetings and anything that uh, Iowa State would conduct on grapes, uh, I'd be right there in the front row, and I was quite interested. We planted our first grapes two years later, and one of the vineyards was uh, the one right here uh, in North Oskaloosa. It was the first vineyard. It was a perfect crop for the location because there are two gas pipelines Right underneath the vineyard, and so we couldn't go very deep, but the roots didn't care, so uh, that was just fine. <laughs> we planted um, about three different grape varieties that year. You don't get grapes uh, for about three years. The vine has to grow and set roots down before you want grapes growing on them. Even the second year, you might pull grapes off for safety, just so that the energy goes into the root system. It was, the pressure was on, what am I going to do with it? And originally, I was going to grow grapes and sell them to wineries. I started looking at the wineries in Iowa and decided, you know, it might be better if we just started our own winery. And that was... Uh, that's quite a
0: leap from I'm going to grow grapes to why don't we just start our own winery.
3: Is there some temporary insanity there? Maybe. Uh, <laughs> I have to- We can't
0: blame it on drinking the wine because you hadn't made it yet. That's so right. that's... Uh, <laughs>
3: Yeah, um, sometimes I wonder about that whole decision process. But what happened was that I was able to buy a a piece of property right out on Highway 163, 87 acres, and we put the winery at the south end of that property and had vineyards going up to the highway. We planted vineyards over several years, wasn't all done at once. We, We were not the first in Iowa. The first really started out in the mid 90s, I think, in, in this there have been wineries before, but uh, they had gone away. And um, uh, so, in the 90s, there was a, another group of people that to, decided to start wineries. A lot of them in Warren County. The grapes have been growing all over the state, really. So, we were, you know, maybe five or six, seven years after that first batch of wineries. So, we're still pretty early in the scheme of things. Today, there are 100 wineries. They're scattered pretty much all over the state, but there are concentrations in the southeast and the south-central, Warren County in particular, and then over in the Council Bluffs area.
0: What is unique about growing grapes in Iowa as opposed to other parts of the country where we might think of it more readily? I would trust the soil here is very good, but yet sometimes the climate is a little harsh. But what are some things that you have to think of that, someone in California, your native state, might not have to think of?
3: Okay, the very first thing is it's cold in the winter and so cold that the trunk of the vine can be damaged by the cold, meaning that you've got to grow a new trunk. The second thing is that the growing season is about three to four months shorter here than it is in temperate climates on the West Coast, whether it's California or Washington or Oregon. So, we've got to have special varieties. That's the, the first thing. And then, once we're growing the vines, we tend to have fairly hot but very humid summers. So, that means fungus eradication has got to be a major design factor in how we trellis the vines, how many leaves we allow to grow on them. I mean, it's just a whole raft of things. Fungus pressure is a big deal uh, for us. So, those three things uh, cold winters, short growing season. And fungus pressures um, have a lot to say about the kinds of vines we plant.
0: Based upon what you have experienced and what you've been told, the taste that you get out of the grapes that you grow here, as opposed to some elsewhere, places you cited, what's distinctive about the Iowa-grown product that allows the wine itself to be distinctive, understanding that there are many other factors that go into that, but what is different about an Iowa-produced crop?
3: The number one difference is that our grapes have significantly higher acidity than temperate climate grapes do, whether they're grown in the three states uh, of the West Coast or in Italy or France or wherever. And that is a function of their origins, really. Our grapes are all called interspecific hybrids. And that means uh, these grapes are usually uh, have a mixed genetic background that includes vitus riparia. And vitus riparia, we know is the ditch grape. It's native to North America, all the way from Nova Scotia to Winnipeg and south to Texas, a big triangle. That acidity, we're starting to learn about the uh, genetic uh, traits there. That acidity is also related to what gives the grape variety enormous self-protection capability, self-protection from fungus and so on, it's not perfect, unfortunately, but it, uh, they're much more resistant to fungi of various types. And I'm talking about powdery mildew, bunch rot, black rot, things of that nature which are endemic in this kind of a climate unless you've got resistant vines, and then you've got to still take those issues seriously. But the biggest difference is, is acidity.
0: And there's only so much in the actual winemaking process that you can do to account for that. Is that a fair statement?
3: Yeah, that is absolutely fair. You can do what's called a malolactic conversion. Some people call it a malolactic fermentation, but it is not a fermentation, really. It's a conversion in which you actually use a bacteria. It's called Enococcus eni, and uh, you introduce that, and that will allow you to reduce the malic acid a bit and you substitute that for lactic acid, you get the lactic acid. And the lactic acid is a softer feeling, so it's very desirable in a dry red wine. We just don't do it, though, in white wines at all. But that malolactic conversion will help us do it. But other things we can do in the vineyard are to see that the grapes are exposed to sunlight. So that means a lot of leaf removing, and leaf removing is horribly expensive if you do it by hand. We actually have a machine that will go down both sides of the row and actually blows air through them. and just shreds them, but doesn't hurt the fruit. And that
0: gives you a a much more open canvas for the sunlight to hit.
3: The canopy needs to be open because otherwise the air in there stops moving, and now you've got fungus generation. And it has the secondary benefit of reducing the malic acid. Everything you do will impact something else. So there's systems involved here. and We're still trying to get it right.
0: Bob Worson of Tassel Ridge Winery in Oskaloosa, online at tasselridge.com. And that brings us to the close of this week's program. We're back again next week at this same time. In the meantime, you can listen to all or part of today's program by going to totallyiowa.com and clicking on the radio program's link. We welcome your comments. Send them by email to radio at totallyiowa.com. I'm Jeff Stein. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you have a prosperous week.
2: The Iowa Business Report is presented with support from the Iowa Association of Business and Industry. Follow ABI on Twitter at IowaABI and online at IowaABI.org.